So we're, we're doing something a little bit different uh, today. Uh, you know, we've been reading through the Bible, and there's, a, there's something to be said about just the Bible just speaking for itself and reading through the Bible. And uh, the, the story that we're looking at today is the book of Esther, and it's the only book in the Bible where God doesn't say anything. Uh, no words are quoted concerning God. In fact, God's name, I, I don't think, is even mentioned in the book. And what you see happening here is God's, the work of God, uh, we see, uh, speaks for itself. Uh, that the work of God can go forward without the name of God even being mentioned. The work of God can go forward without God saying anything. The work of God can become clear to people without words from God even being spoken. And that's not to say that words aren't important, but this is at least one book where that's pointing us to just take a look at the story and see what's happening in the story. And since we've been reading through the Bible anyways, I'm going to do a little bit of a shift and I'm going to read and also the the story is just it's it's hard to know where to pick up and where to leave off because it's so you can't really look at any one part of it without having to have the info from another part and so we're going to do something a little bit different today and hopefully it'll be a little bit shorter but i'm just going to spend more time reading through we're going to look at three different sections three different chapters sort of of this book and read through those and then I'll probably have a few things to say on each of those chapters. Now, the book of Ezra, Esther, excuse me, is connected with the book of Ezra. Well, last week we looked at Ezra chapter 3. And in the next chapter, when there are these arguments brought against what's happening in Jerusalem and the work of the temple is put a stop to, uh, the name of a king is mentioned in there, the King Xerxes. And uh, so, so this story, we, we don't know exactly where the story of Esther, or excuse me, when the story of Esther happened. It happens sometime uh, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, during the time of these stories that are being told about what's happening in Jerusalem. And this is a short story to show what's happening within the government in Babylon or Persia. So the Jews were in captivity. They were freed as the Lord stirred their hearts. Some went back to rebuild the temple and the walls, and some stayed. And of those that stayed, there's now a glimpse or a story into that as God's giving freedom, here's what's happening with those that are left in Babylon and Persia. And uh, the story starts with God, or what we see now is a very providential placing of uh, a woman named Esther into a relationship with the king. And through that relationship, uh, the person who is taking care of her, Mordecai, uh, we, we see things about his life. And, and here's how we're, we'll pick it up. We'll pick it up and. Uh, chapter 3. It says, after these events, uh, King Xerxes honored 
the, the events that they're talking about is that Mordecai had been at the gate and had overheard that uh, someone was, uh, that a couple of the king's officials were getting ready to plot against the king to assassinate the king. And he informed Esther and Esther told the king or told what, what Mordecai had done. And so they'd uncovered this plot to assassinate the king. So after these events, it says, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadeth, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, well, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not kneel down nor pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And what you see is that the beginning of what God was doing, last week we saw it, it began with the promise of God, and then it moved forward with God stirring the heart of Cyrus of Persia. And this week we see that it starts with God placing someone in a relationship with someone, a key person. And then it really starts to unfold so that other people can see more clearly what's happening. And the beginning of that, of people being able to see what it is that God is doing, starts with a single person refusing to bend the knee, a single person uh, defying the law, being lawless, you might say, and saying, I'm not going to comply. And that happening every day, and people keep out, why aren't you complying? It's at the city gate, so it's that's sort of in the forefront of, of uh, the most visible place in their culture and their society. One person was making a stand and not complying, and nothing is really said about why or what's going on. It's just this act of... You could call it defiance. You could call it lawless. But what it really is is just an act of someone saying, I'm not going to comply with this. And the rage that Haman felt and then the discomfort that everyone else and trying to figure out what's happening here and, and the discussion that follows based on one person uh, refusing to comply. And, and then we see how Haman presents this issue to the king in order to gain the king's uh, approval or to try and get the king to be on his side. It says, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There are certain people dispersed among the peoples of all the providence of your kingdom who keep themselves separate, or the word is, who are different. 
And, and so the argument that he's putting out is because of a difference, something needs to be done. They needed to be treated differently because they are different. Their customs are different from those of all other people. And, and then he says, they do not obey the king's laws. We don't have any indication of that actually being the case. All we have is one person refusing to bend the knee to Haman. But there's no indication that that person doesn't know the king's laws. In fact, what they don't know or what isn't put out is that that person has already put their work to the king and their actions. They proved uh, their loyalty. Hey, Dennis, are you back? I'm back now. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Sorry about that. There we go. All right. The point being in this chapter is that, look, oftentimes we think of these arguments or these thoughts go through our mind, or people will say things. I've, I've many times heard people say in the church that this isn't something God is doing because it's lawlessness, or something to that effect. And, and we just need to understand that that's actually the very argument that the Pharisees used against Jesus, saying this can't be something God is doing because it's lawless. It's the argument that people used against Paul that this can't be something God is doing because we've deemed it as being lawless, that, that there's someone who's not complying to what it is that everyone is used to doing. There's someone who's not bending the knee. There's someone who's standing there and not bowing down to, to the place that we feel like we need to be, be held at. And, it's a common thing, and God, there's many, many stories throughout the Bible where God brings freedom or the things that God does are ushered forward through the non-compliance of a single person. And so there, there is no argument that says that because something is deemed as being lawless, that it is therefore cannot be something that God is doing. In fact, if you were to look through the Bible, you would almost see that it would be the opposite. And the problem with saying that something is lawless is that Jesus makes very clear that there's none righteous, no, not one. In other words, the truth is that we're all lawless, <laughs> And so for a lawless person to say that another person is lawless is a meaningless thing and says nothing about the other person, says nothing about whether it is or isn't lawless, because it may or may not be lawless. But using the argument says something about the person who's using it. And in this case, in this story, it's clear that Haman is putting that argument out to the king because of evil that has been in his heart because of hate that he feels, a hate that's, as far as we can see in this story, is really only due to Mordecai not kneeling down as he walked out. The story continues. It says, the queen invites... Haman and uh, she, the Mordecai tells Esther that, that she can't stay silent. She needs to 
tell the king the truth about what's going on because the king isn't seeing it. And so she decides to have this banquet and she invites uh, Haman and the king to it to reveal the truth to the king. And when Haman finds out, he says he went on that day, went out that day happy and in high spirits. This is chapter five. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Uh, you know, just because someone doesn't show fear, just because someone uh, won't comply, that there's no reason for rage. There's no reason for a for killing someone. There's no reason for making a plan. But it says, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways that the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and the officials. And that's not all Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go to the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. <laughs> this suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read it to him. And it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Begathana and Teresh, two of the king's officers, who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, well, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on a pole that he had set up. And his attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to the one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor, to lead him on his horse throughout the city, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai, led him on horseback through the streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. After Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh's wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors, his wife Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom you 
Your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin. You cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And while they were still talking to him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. You know, what God was doing was very simple and clear, even to people that didn't want to see it happen, people who probably didn't even believe in God. It was very clear what was happening and what God was doing. God had actually raised Haman up for a time, and he was chief of advisors to the king, chief of the princes, chief of the people, and there was an honor that was due with that. And Haman reveled in that glory. But when Mordecai refused to kneel, it was an indicator that was becoming more and more clear that God was going to replace what we see at the end of the story, and this is just what happened, is he completely replaced Haman with Mordecai. He raised Haman up, and then he raised Mordecai up. And so what was going on was a shift in power where one person was in charge, and God is replacing that person with another person. And this whole story of the back and forth, there's all these arguments and these different things that are going on. But what's happening is, is Haman is causing himself injury by failing to comply with where it is that God is headed. Everyone can see where God is headed, but it's his resistance to that that is his downfall. You know, I, I'll probably get into a, a lot of trouble for saying this, but there, there's been many times when, you know, in our family, one of our kids has just sort of refused to comply on this issue or that issue. And there's this certain sense of, well, they just need to comply. And I'm not advocating for anarchy in the family or anything like that. I'm just telling you what is the case. That many times, one of our kids who in our family you might think of as having least amount of power, they refuse to comply but their refusal was something that we needed to pay attention to because it headed us in a different direction, a direction that God was going, a direction that was better for us. When someone refuses to comply, there's no reason to criminalize that or to say that it's a cause to ask, well, what is God doing? And God will make his actions clear. And, you know, in terms of our, our kids, whether we like it or not, or whether we think we're going to stop it or not, or whether we think that our kids are too young or whatever, the simple fact is, is that God is changing leadership in, in families from parents to kids. And I see that happening in our family. And, and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And one day... When they were babies, I led them forward. Karen led them forward. And another day, as they, God changes that, 
they will lead us forward. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. You know, when you guys have already read through when Saul messed up and God said, look, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to David. Saul could have very easily have just said, you know, I've messed up. You know, let's go in that direction and let me know what I can do to help, how I can transition that over. You know, how do you want me to do it right now? Do you want me to wait till later? You know, it's, I'm going to, you want someone else to lead that? That's okay. I'll follow that. In fact, Saul, it says, was countered among the prophets and many times went out prophesying. God might have even have had a, a second career for him as that might have been better than king, uh, head of the prophets. But it was the resistance to what God was doing that just created all the turmoil in his life. It's important for us to take notice and to look at what God is doing. And when someone isn't just going along with the way things have always been, the way everyone else is complying to, it doesn't matter whether God's name is mentioned or or anything like that. It, 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 what it is, is we should take notice and see, well, what is God doing? Where is God heading? And as that becomes clear, which will become clear whether we care about God or not, whether we like the change or not, it became clear to everybody in this story, including Haman, that the sooner we can get on board with that, the less destruction we're going to be a part of it. Now, here's the last part. It says, so the king said to Haman and went to, so the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. And Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. Grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, annihilated. If we had merely been sold as servants, I would have kept quiet because no such damage would justify, or, or, or no such stress would justify the damage to the king. And the damage that she's talking about there is the damage that she knows is going to fall to the king uh, as soon as she tells the king what's going on. The truth of the matter is, and the damage that the king is going to face is one, seeing that he is the person that he has trusted in has betrayed him and betrayed those that he loves and, and headed things in a direction that is damaging one that the king loves and damaging the king by damaging the one he loves and damaging the ones that it's like a chain of love and connection that's there that's been set against. And then the damage that also comes in knowing that the king allowed all that to happen. The king should, knew he shouldn't have trusted 
Haman. He even said to Haman, take your money. I, I don't need that when the, he puts that before him. And it's the complicity that the king has in, in this destruction. And the king responds by pointing out what the problem is. He says, who is he? Where is he? Who would fill his heart with such things? He says, the problem is, who, who would allow such things, this, this violence, who would fill their hearts with that? When the Lord brings change, there's no reason to look at it as being a bad thing. There's no reason to criminalize it and fight against it. When the Lord's bringing change, it's something that, that we should look forward to. The turmoil that we face with that change is often caused by us resisting the change that God is bringing. And the real problem is that we're just filling our hearts with, with violence and, and hateful things. Passage ends, says Esther, says an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in rage, left his wine, and went out of the palace garden, but Haman, realizing what the king, that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Esther, Queen Esther, for his life. And just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even do violence to the queen while she is with me in the house? And as soon as the word left king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, uh, attended the king and said, a pole reaching the height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, whom spoke, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. It, it's, the whole story is just a tragic story. It really didn't need to be a tragic story. It was a story where God was bringing freedom to his people, and God was going to bless the government, the kingdom, through that. But it's something that required some humbling on the part of Haman. Humbling isn't a, a bad thing. Change isn't a bad thing. Someone, God using someone who isn't complying, that's not a bad thing. What, what's a bad thing is the way we resist what God is doing. What's a bad thing is the way that we fill our hearts up with things that, that harden our heart. And there's enough to see. God makes it clear uh, what his actions are, what it is that he's doing. 
But the problem is we don't want to humble ourselves. The problem is we don't want to change. The problem is we're filling our heart with these other things. And that the path that leads to salvation is a path that leads to our heart softening, not our heart hardening. And you can judge what God is doing and what we are filling our heart with by looking at our heart. Is it closing our heart off? Is it filling our heart with hate? What the story is really this picture of how God was bringing freedom and how people reacted to it. It's sort of a warning to us and also sort of lights the path to soften our heart to that repentance is our friend. It's not an enemy. Things that humble us are our friend, not an enemy. Someone who isn't just going along with the way things have always been done, that's not our enemy. The enemy is all the things that we pour into our heart uh, day in and day out. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll sing these last few songs. Uh, Jesus, we just... Pray that you'll open our hearts up to you, that you'll forgive us for all the ways we've resisted the things that you're doing. Forgive us for all the ways that we've elevated ourselves up instead of just seeing what is given as a gift. Help us to see the things that you're changing. Help us to see the things that you're doing. And help us to quickly line ourselves up with what you're doing and what's happening. And I pray that you would give us things to fill our hearts with today as we sing, throughout the week as we read your word. Uh, Fill our hearts with things that soften our hearts, that bring us onto your side. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.